Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Carl Hassel. Kyle is the owner of The Boathouse, a tapas restaurant based in Upton-upon-Seven, Worcestershire. It is one of three business interests of Kyle's, which also include a cocktail bar come pizzeria and also an outdoor catering business. Um, Kyle, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Hello, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure having you and we are especially appreciative of it given all of the disruption in the hospitality sector at the moment and that is something that I do really want to talk about. Um, Given the ongoing COVID-19 situation and how it has blighted the industry, we must start there. Um, To what extent has all of this that's been going on over the course of 2020 affected you and your businesses? Oh, it's been absolutely uh, unprecedented. I mean, we opened uh, our, our first venture 16 years ago, um, and we've had various things affect the industry and had to adapt uh, and so on, but no one would have envisaged anything quite like this um, from from being completely locked down and the kind of uncertainty of when we'd be allowed to open to then getting the go-ahead to open again and, and predominantly having customer safety in mind and having to adapt and and tweak um, pretty much every aspect of the business. Um, it, it's really taken us taken us by quite a storm, really, and it, it's still quite uncertain as we speak. Although we're allowed to open, um, the restrictions and, and the uncertainty of how long it's going to go on for um, affects us on a daily basis. And. With regards to what this has done to the hospitality sector, can you see there being something of a COVID hangover on the industry, even when we have a working vaccine in place, fingers crossed, and the the virus itself is no longer an issue? The reason I ask that question is because the effects that this will have on consumer confidence and the prolonged anxiety that this essentially um, is going to bring, it could make people a lot more hesitant, even when it is safe to venture outside and into venues again, to actually come out, eat out and spend money. Absolutely. Um, it, it could take years and it may not be the same as we knew it before um, um, ever, really. Uh, we find now um, a lot of... Um, confidence issues with uh, both with with customers we haven't seen since mm-hmm. way before lockdown um, and customers who who have returned since lockdown um, but they're a little unsure of how to act uh, should they come out so often um, is it okay um, to to sit here to do this and and there's um, a lot lots of apprehension between um, how knowing them this time last year and knowing how they behave now and their interaction uh, with each other with staff um, I think it will affect the industry for a long long time it will also affect um, looking at the other aspect of it uh, the staff side Um, there will be a lot less people wanting to train and become chefs to train and become in hospitality front of house managers bar staff there will be a lot of great chefs that will lose that will have to retrain and do something else great front of house members we've lost a few already that have because of the uncertainty, uncertainty, um, they've retrained and gone into other careers. So 
we'll lose some stars of our industry as well, I think. And it's a big problem that the industry is going to lose opportunities because there's also going to be a greater quantity of people available for work because of rising um, unemployment um, and redundancies in other sectors. And the industry isn't going to be able to offer those opportunities. No, uh, certainly not. I mean, um, we've got some fantastic stuff that we've been able to keep. Uh, We've unfortunately had to lose one or two. Um, But the hours and the salaries, first of all, for the places that have remained open um, simply Mm. isn't there anymore. Our hours have been reduced. Our everywhere's capacity has been reduced and so with that would be um, the salaries that the establishments are able to give their staff. Um, so it's completely turned the industry upside down really. Um, it's, it's made training a lot harder. It's made Our focus in training has become more on customer safety as it should be rather than the products um, mm. that we, we sell and the upselling techniques that we'd usually use. Um, so it, it's completely, completely changed things. And um, I think there'll be a lot less people wanting to train to come into this industry because of the uncertainty and a lot a lot less um, salary uh, uh, salary packages people offering out and um, uh, from the kitchen to front of house. But I think particularly front of house is going to put a lot of people off um, casual work and a lot of people off wanting to pursue mm-hmm. this as a, as a serious uh, job. And while, of course, there is a lot of doom and gloom within the sector at the moment, um, we are on the programme trying to find some silver lining in what has been such a dark and dense cloud over all of us throughout 2020. So are there any sort of positives that you can take from this and that maybe it's taught you a little bit about um, yourself in a leadership role or maybe the resilience of you, your staff, your businesses? Definitely, yeah. I mean, you've got to adapt in any business, uh, whether you've got COVID, whether you haven't got COVID, things are going to happen and you've got to adapt. You've got to update things. You've got to to keep people safe and and you've got to change to the situation and the climate around you. Um, We've changed. We had a cocktail bar also, which we opened just prior to lockdown. It was actually a fortnight before lockdown. We'd set that place up as, as a cocktail bar. We've diversified now and it's become a pizzeria predominantly for takeaway. That's doing very well. Um, we've increased uh, our takeaway and, and delivery service from our, our other restaurant as well. So we're now able to offer the same quality cuisine, still fresh, delivered to people's houses. Um, our team in general has become a lot stronger. We went through the, the whole process together of being locked down and clearing the place up and, and and the slight uncertainty to the, the excitement again of reopening in July. Um, we expanded a little bit in our outside seating area, so we've now doubled our outside seating area. Um, that was that was great fun. We're, we're based right by the river as well, so um, our customers have enjoyed having more space outside. Mm. Um, our staff have certainly enjoyed it out there, and it's, it's 100% brought our staff a lot closer together. Uh, we're, we're a very strong team now, I think, and... Um, it's uh, it's had it's had quite a few positive impacts on our customers. They've seen our resilience. They've seen us adapting. Mm. They see what we're doing to keep them safe. That we care about them, uh, going over and beyond what what we would like to do, um, just just to keep them safe. And and yeah, it's brought us close together as a community. I would say it's brought a lot of our uh, restaurants and, and bars in the town. It's brought us together as a whole, both in the community and the, the pubs together themselves. So there's been, there has been advantages of it. And uh, I think those places that do 
hold tight and stick together and do adapt. I think they'll be stronger for it once once this thing blows over in hopefully in 12, 18 months' time. Mm. And that adaptability and that coming together, that unity, it's something which leadership fundamentally is all about, isn't it? And COVID-19 in that sense has proven to be such a significant learning curve. And it's reminded us so much that whenever a finished article in business, there's always a new challenge around the corner. And so much of being in charge of a business is trial and error because a lot of people who have come onto the program, they've described this period as being like taking their first steps in running a business. Again, it's like when they back when they began their business and having to go back to basics, change up things. And it's been something that largely, albeit, um, of course, incomes have been down in a lot of cases, they've really taken it in their stride. Certainly, yes. Yeah, I mean, we, we were open six years prior to this uh, and, and opening again in July was, we had that same buzz of opening a new business. We had chance over lockdown to look at our menus um, to improve the dishes, to to fine tune certain dishes, to improve our cocktail menu, um, to streamline the way we run the the front of house, and we had lots of training days with the front of house staff, so we were able to perhaps when we you ordinarily in the seven day a week wouldn't have chance to, to take a step back and look at your menus and look at the finer service of your front of house team. We actually had that chance, and we said, okay, what can we improve? What can we when we come back? We want to come back bigger and better. We want to give the customer a better experience. What little aspects can we change to improve what we do as a team? Um, so the time to stand back and look uh, was fantastic. And we did get a huge buzz reopening again. And I think once the restrictions do ease and, and we are allowed uh, weddings, functions, live music evenings, um, as long as people aren't silly, I think there'll be the same buzz when those things come back as well. And um, certainly closing earlier and, and having more restrictions put on us does give us more time to, to look at the organizational side and say, okay, what we're doing is good, but how can we make it really good? Um, and I think that's been another positive um, to, co- to come out of everything. And, and I think the restaurants that do remain open and the hospitality businesses that do remain open throughout this will be bigger, better and stronger than ever once once we are allowed out of these um restrictions mm. and we know that those restrictions at least for the uh, the next uh, six months are perhaps going to be um, in place and we may well be in this until the spring um, but over the course of the year uh, the next 12 months just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program Kyle I'm interested to understand what it is that you're really hoping to achieve at your businesses and indeed where you see yourselves being in a year's time when hopefully we have a vaccine and we can start focusing on the longer term future beyond COVID we want to reach out to, to further people with it, with our cuisine. We want our cuisine to speak for itself. So we want to deliver it to, okay, people might not have the confidence to come into restaurants or for medical reasons they may not be able to. We want to bring our service and our, our quality of food to their doors so that when we do, when it is a safer in, in economy and environment for them to come out again, they remember us, remember that great meal we had at the boathouse. Uh, we had their takeaway, let's go and try them. Uh, I want to keep a, keep a strong, unified team together so that when all this blows over, we, we, we're ready and I owe something to them for their loyalty as well. So I'd like to bring the good times back to them uh, in as many ways as possible and repay their loyalty. Um, I, want to, I want to provide people with the, the, the best, most finely tuned product and service that we can do. And perhaps out, out of all of this, we'll... I think a lot of places would certainly have have realised, you know, what having 
uh, track and trace records, perhaps it's something that should continue. Uh, if, mm. if there's been any outbreak of anything, perhaps sanitizer units, things, I think they should perhaps be in all, all restaurants anyway, uh, hand sanitizers. I think that there's a lot of things, certainly in terms of customer safety and staff say, safety, that should be continued to be implemented. Um, and we'll certainly come out a lot um, stronger mentally. Uh, I think people in the industry will have the, the mentality that, look, if we've got through that, we can get through anything. Anything that comes our way, we'll adapt, we'll improve, we'll unify, and we're going to do it. I think it will create a lot big re- resilience. So, um, yeah, we'll expand. We'll expand our river terrace. And um, once the good times do, do come back, we'll be ready, and hopefully we'll be, be at a, a larger capacity and a, a safe an environment for people as we can. Mm, I certainly uh, hope so uh, for sure and I think you're absolutely right um, I think there are so many elements of the lockdown period that could well be here to stay just because of the lingering anxiety like hand sanitizer stations in the interest of customer safety even beyond the pandemic and I'm very much like yourself Kyle in uh, hoping that the good times will be rolling again before too long and we'll be out of this rut decisively um, I actually think just given how enlightening it's been welcoming you onto our programme to discuss how your business has been getting on that it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in the future and have you back on our show just to see at some point in the next year how far we've come since then and how things behind the scenes are getting on absolutely yes i'd love to I'd really welcome that opportunity. I've thoroughly enjoyed your company on the programme today. And uh, most importantly as well, until we do hopefully get to speak again, um, please do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on. Because as we well know, we are not out of the woods with this one yet. But let's just keep our fingers crossed that it's not going to be too much longer. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. It's been such a pleasure, Carl. Thank you ever so much. Um, I would also reiterate that last message there to every single one of our listeners tuning into the programme today. Please do continue to stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of other people because it makes a clear difference in saving lives during this time. It was a pleasure to welcome Boathouse owner Carl Hassel onto the programme today. Um, Coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Now, um, Sir Jeff, during an illustrious football career scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City among other clubs but of course he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup. That came after his treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany back at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. Um, In his interview shortly he will be looking back on some of the highlights of his career, the importance of robust leadership figures throughout and leaving a message of thanks for our wonderful NHS who've been instrumental during this time. That will be coming up very shortly. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might last. Absolutely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. 
Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with, with this record and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who was a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm, want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've off, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving, at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, is the game nearly finished? I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Pilkowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game is unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, making it. It's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. the walks of life an element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. 
And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it. And so on, but really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective, uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about going to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, uh, technically good enough to, to be a rat, to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he's the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. 
Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the, and teach and coach the players to be to prepared to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and um, all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh, yes, I think it, yes, I think it, leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during Absolutely. your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? 
<laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in in those uh, medieval days, you there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford. We that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac. It's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, we didn't have as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so as you three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, we actually got fined, this is absolutely true, we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you, there's nowhere else to play apart from the street. And uh, we were actually, but that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton on the line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was probably I was the eldest of three. When I was probably about seven or eight, into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think, was uh, had a big influence. Going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed. And I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty, pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father. I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my my story is a friend of my father. I know the guy's name called Jock Redfern. Unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, 
there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game from there. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game um, the V Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60 62, 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, uh, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, not just sitting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky. And 
very lucky, of course, to have that kind of, and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves who didn't play was a world class player in put in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world class players. And Banksy was up there not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a, a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly, my wife was very surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould. Mm. Without any shadow of a doubt, he, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham, it was a great time with the club. 
and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was... I wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge and I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year but I've made very little contribution to that success that I've had so um, yes it, uh, the, the American experience was just fantastic I never saw it long term being over there that was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters and my wife and she was uh, pregnant with her Third daughter over there, so that was that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a just a. I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about I think a month. I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New, new kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that? you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you've finished playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And I always joke and say, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly, um, I felt during the, time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my football career and I think I, I went into business for 20 years and I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up so I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years probably for those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, when you hear stories about 
this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. And ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.